This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, Scott Radley in for Rick Zamperin today. What is social media doing to your teenagers? There's some numbers out there with some road marks, things along the way that show the impact it's having. It's really fascinating. If you're a t- parent of a teenager, you want to stick around and find this out. Uh, we're going to be chatting about comedy and offense. If comedy is offensive, should it not be allowed to be given? What should we do with comedy that offends people? We're going to be chatting about the 1972 Canada-Russia series. The anniversary is coming up. We're going to be getting into the meeting between the Premier and the Prime Minister yesterday and people's anger with politicians. And Bell Canada is pushing back against the Lisa Laflamme narrative. Are they too late? All coming up. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Doing my thing on Twitter the other day, flipping around, and all of a sudden, this graphic popped up that stopped me because it looked interesting. And as I looked a little deeper, it was really interesting. And then I looked a little bit deeper, and I went, wait a second, this is a graphic that comes from a book by someone we love having on CHML here, because she is an amazing guest with a lot of unbelievable things to say. Her name is Dr. Jean Twenge. She's a professor of psychology at San Diego State University. She's the author of over 130 scientific publications, six books, including iGen, Why Today's Super Connected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood. Uh, Dr. Twenge, thanks for the time today. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. So this graphic, as I understand it, someone has pulled this out. It's not brand new, but I think the relevance, it's new to me, and I think the relevance is still there. It's about how much time kids are spending with their friends, but it also ties into some points along the way of different social media things and the impact that's having. And this graphic, people can't see it, obviously. As we're going along year after year after year, kids are spending an awful lot less time, it seems, socializing in real life. That is right. So if you look at kids, say, 13 to 17 years old, and there's big surveys that have done that um, since 1976, actually, and you can see how much time they say they spend hanging out with their friends or going out of the house without their parents. Um, driving around a car, all of those things that teens have traditionally done to hang out with each other, every single one of those things has gone down. That I just, and the most recent generation of teens are a lot less likely to hang out with their friends every day than teens were in the 70s, the 80s, even in the 2000s. So teens hanging out with their friends face-to-face started to decline around 2000, and then it really fell off a cliff after about 2010. And for the record, just to, to clarify, so some people might be thinking, well, of course, we just had COVID. They've been locked up. Of course they have. This, is, this predates COVID and any kind of lockdowns and everything else. It does. So that decline um, really got going about 10 years ago. So it does absolutely predate the pandemic. And 
you know, really was going between about 2010, 2015. That's the graphic that you saw. And it continued to go down. So right before the pandemic, when um, there weren't any restrictions at all, teens hanging out with their friends face to face was at all time lows. And this graphic, one of the things that's so striking about this, and I suppose you could have picked almost anything as a barometer, but when you look at this graphic, it points out where the iPhone is released in this chronology. And look, I'm not saying the iPhone is evil. I use mine all the time. But there is a clear seeming to tail off. As soon as the iPhone comes out and then leading to other smartphones, boy, the the chart just, like, it just tumbles down a cliff. It really does. So... This, this period, you think the iPhone, iPhone was introduced in 2007, and the majority of North, North Americans owned one um, by the end of 2012. That was right around the same time also that social media use among teens moved from optional to virtually mandatory. Mm. It used to be social media was something about half of teens did every day. And then in that period, you know, late 2000, especially early 2010, that's when it crossed, you know, 75 percent, 80 percent, where if you weren't using it, you were left out. So in other words, electronic communication started to replace in-person interaction. Okay, so when I look at this then, so, I, you know, I say this looks bad then, that you've got way less in-person social interaction. This probably means something negative. But what you just said, does it really matter? As long as I'm communicating, if I'm a kid, if I'm a teenager, does it really matter if I'm looking face to face with someone or if I'm communicating with them by text? What's the difference? Is there That's a great, yeah, it's a great question. A lot of people have said that. They've said, doesn't matter. You know, teens are communicating with their friends or just doing it in a different way. But the question is, which of those types of interaction is linked to happiness? And which of those types of interaction is linked to depression the longer you do it? And that's a pretty easy answer. The teens who spend more time with their friends face-to-face are happier and less likely to be depressed. The teens who spend more time on social media and communicating online, less happy, more likely to be depressed. All right, so I'm a parent now, and I've got teenage kids, and I want my kids to be happy. And so with your suggestion, I should be encouraging them not to be on their phone, not to be using a device as much, certainly, or maybe at all. But am I not a terrible parent? If all of their friends are only communicating social media-wise, am I a terrible parent if I say, you can't use your phone, you can't have the phone, because I want you to be with them in person? Well, there's different types of ways to communicate electronically, and some are worse and better than others. So social media seems to be the worst, at least in terms of its correlation with depression. So texting um, or doing FaceTime, video chat, that's more one-on-one. So that's not as linked uh, to depression or unhappiness. There's also limits to things. So if your kid wants to communicate with their friends electronically an hour or so a day, that's not a big deal. That's not linked to high levels of unhappiness or depression. It's when kids get really sucked in and they end up, in their words, addicted and they can't put that phone down, and it starts interfering with face-to-face social interaction, whether with their friends or their family, that's when you start to see the high levels of depression. So it's all in moderation. All right. So when we were kids, I don't know, you know I'm not going to guess when, but when, when I was a kid, 
uh, my mom, my dad would say, get out of the house, go play with your friends, go do something outside. Now, everyone's terrified of having their kids outside. Stay in. We don't want you running around. You'll get injured or kidnapped or whatever else. Should we be going back to saying, get out of the house and go and play with your friends and go and hang out, do something, go to the mall and hang out in the food court if you have to, like in the 80s. Just do something to be out of the house. I, I think we need to get back to that. I think we need to get back to valuing independence, whether that's in terms of uh, kids or teens. Uh, I think, you know, as parents, we have to change our thinking a little bit when it comes to teens, that it's so tempting to think teens hanging out with their friends is a waste of time. It is not. It's good for their mental health. It's also good for them developing social skills because that's what I hear from managers. They'll say, you know, I like this generation for a lot of reasons, but I am surprised at how many, how, how few of them will look me in the eye. They don't have the social skills that we need them to have. And they were saying that before the pandemic. And now, after two and a half years of limited social interaction, I have no doubt that that issue is even worse. Mm. It is, uh, you can find this graph. Again, I'm way behind the times, but it was new to me and I wanted to talk about it. It's in the book called Why Today is iGen. Why Today's, it's the best title ever. Why Today's super connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood. It's written by Dr. Gene Twenge, who, uh, who's been with us. Uh, thank you so much for this. Always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The meeting that was held yesterday between the Premier, Doug Ford, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And we didn't really know what was going to be discussed going in. We had some pretty good ideas. Well, now we have a better idea. And healthcare, predictably, was seemingly front and center with both men agreeing that the system here in Ontario is not working as well as it should, which may be a slight understatement. Daniel Perry is a consultant with Summa Strategies who joins us now. Daniel, how are you this morning? Good. I hope you're well also. I am doing great, thanks. Uh, yeah, maybe a lot of people would say, really? Gosh, guys, you think that the health system isn't working quite as well as it should? I don't know that that's exactly qualifying as breaking news on the <laughs> CNN ticker right there. Uh, yeah, also to come out of the conference is that they agree that the sky is blue. So uh, it was obvious day last uh, yesterday. And I think if you're if you've taken part in the healthcare system recently, or you you've been watching it, I think even no matter where you stand on the political spectrum, it's not working and it needs to be fixed. And yet, uh, ultimately, I mean, this meeting, like so many others, you just wonder, like, is okay, is it laying the groundwork for something? Was it just to say we're having a meeting? Because what I didn't hear out of this was anything remotely approaching any kind of concrete thing, just that we're going to work together to make a deal. Well, what does that mean? It means just that they don't even know how to do this. And there's even disagreement among the premiers on how to approach this because the premiers are saying they want to see a top up of 35% of all healthcare funding in their province, where the federal government is saying we're already providing that. So until you can find a number of agreements, it's going to be hard to try to fix this problem. Well, and there's a second problem that goes with the first problem that adds to a third problem. We've got enough problems here, is that nobody, even within the system, 
Well, maybe those in the system would agree, but few people can agree on how you get to a solution because some would say, well, just dump way more billions of dollars in and more money will mean better results. And others say, we're already spending more than almost any other developed country on our healthcare Mm -hmm. and it's not working. So simply adding more money is not the solution. But if we can't even agree on what the solution is, how do we begin to solve it? And that's the big problem that a lot of people in the healthcare sector have been trying to determine. And a lot of politicians are trying to figure out, you are very right to say throwing more money at a problem very rarely fixes it. In this case, it might be a temporary fix, but there are a lot of underlying issues, especially in Ontario on how the system is run. And that needs to be addressed before we're able to actually tackle the problem of long wait lines or even the worst issue of ERs being closed. Well, and something else that I want to bring up, and we talked about this yesterday uh, very briefly, and that is, let us say, let us assume for a second, and it's not a fair assumption, but just for the sake of the discussion, let's assume that more money would lead to better results. All right, just, 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 that's the solution. If we have another $10 billion a year into Ontario healthcare, our problems go away. I think people are tired of different levels of government arguing over who should provide the money because mm-hmm. what gets lost in this all the time is it doesn't matter. You and I and the other taxpayers are still paying. Who cares where it comes from? Exactly. And I think that's something I think more Canadians are willing to pay a little bit more money if it means better servicing. Um, but the challenge is every level of government wants to be able to take credit for that. And that's where I think without putting more money in, yeah, without exactly. putting the more money yeah. in. Exactly. They want to basically do nothing but be seen as a superhero. And like many things in life, that's not actually how it works. You actually have to get your hands dirty. So I would say it's time that all levels of government uh, get off their hands and actually start thinking about this and making some deals to make sure that we actually have some good service for our Ontarians because healthcare is a basic human right. And the fact that we're not able to deliver that in Canada is very sad. That is a frustration. I want to pivot a little bit here to something else that's going on right now, because yesterday we had someone on talking about the rage index in Canada. There was a poll done looking at the rage. People are getting angrier. And when we talked to him, uh, the guest, he said, well, you know, maybe the better word, even though rage is great, uh, as far as a word to describe this, maybe frustration is a better word. We saw what happened in Alberta earlier this week. It's gotten tons of publicity about Christian Freeland being approached by someone who told her to do something kind of anatomically impossible, I think, if I recall, and uh, leave the province. There is real anger in this country. And I'm wondering, the the immediate response was, well, look at that Yahoo who's just being an idiot. And he was being an idiot. Mm -hmm. But do politicians bear any responsibility at all for the anger that people clearly have? Or do we say, no, they really don't. They're just being politicians. People just have to be nicer. Um, it would be great if people would be nicer, but I think at the end of the day, uh, politicians, especially when you look at the House of Commons during question period, they're very much stoking this anger and trying, they're aching each other on. So to be acting blamelessly, being like, oh no, we didn't see this coming, even though we've been trying to stoke uh, each other and try to get under each other's feathers for years is kind of shocking to me. Um, Politicians do represent their constituents and they are representing their views. So understandable that there might be some frustration among politicians, but they also play a major role in trying to calm that down. And that's something they should look to do. And, and, it's very common to it's a lot easier to point out a flaw than try to work with someone to find a solution and i think that's what we need in our canadian politics because traditionally we are a lot more calm than the u.s but as of late it seems like we're taking their anger from the other side of the border and bringing it to canada and that's not what we need here yeah and and look 
I'm not in any way defending people acting like wingnuts. I, I mm. absolutely am not. You do, as an adult, you do have to show self-restraint. You do have to control yourself. But it doesn't really surprise me that some people on all sides of the political mm. aisle are going to lash out at times when I think they feel like, well, you've asked us to be reasonable. You've asked us to do the things that we've been supposed to do the proper way, and you're not listening to us, mm -hmm. and you're insulting us. What's my next option? What option do I have left? I, I think that had something to do with the trucker convoy, mm -hmm. whether you mm -hmm. agree with it or disagree with it. There are people who feel no one's listening, and more than that, you're insulting my views. What is left for me to do? That's a bad position to put people in. And that's a position a lot of people have felt, especially during COVID. And I think COVID really accelerated the frustration that the average person was feeling against the government, no matter where you stand on the political spectrum. And I think just we've lost, well, honestly, lost a lot of social skills as well. Uh, we're not using our words that's like true. we should. And now we're just going very harsh and angry. And it's something that's going to take a while to kind of back down because we've opened a door and it's going to be a hard one to close. Yeah. And you know, anyone, look, again, I want to reinstate or reinforce that I'm not suggesting that this guy's behavior or anyone mm. who throws pebbles at the prime minister or any of this, I'm not endorsing that by any stretch. I'm not excusing that. But even the prime minister recall uh, about a year ago when there were churches on reserves that were being burned down said it's not acceptable, but it's understandable, right? Even then we were saying, I, maybe there's something that is making people mad enough that they are doing something they other wouldn't normally otherwise do. And if that's the case, surely politicians, as you say, have to look at them in the mirror as well and say, am I helping this or am I causing this to go further? And I think we really need to see leadership from our politicians because they're the ones who set the tone in that regards and their words very much matter. And like you pointed out, the phrasing of the prime minister that he used in that situation, like that's not really a response you would want to see from the leader of your country. And I, I think politicians need to take more time and self-reflection instead of trying to get a nice quick Twitter video or a nice quote out there to actually think about what they're saying and how that will influence people. Because I agree with you. What we saw in Alberta with the with the finance minister was appalling. Any behavior like that is not acceptable. And that goes across the political aisle. Doug Ford has had issues with people showing up to his house yeah. to protest. Yeah. And there's, there's a very should be a separation between your job and your personal life. People have no to, need people to have that. to behave. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Perry with Summa Strategies. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you. Take care. Back after this, stay with us. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Should comedy be sanitized or should it be allowed to be offensive? Should comedy be allowed to push bounds or should we be concerned that comedy that some would find offensive is inappropriate and shouldn't be presented because of the harm it could do? That is really at the heart of a discussion that's been going on for the past few days in St. Catharines. Jeff Dunham, who's a very well-known, very successful, highly successful ventriloquist, one of the top-selling comedians out there, uh, he has a performance coming up in St. Catharines on November 20th. He, in, in his act, there are some characters that are, well... There's a, a, some of his puppets include a dead terrorist named Ahmed and a totally legal jalapeno on a stick named Jose. They play on racial stereotypes, some of them. And there are those who say this should not be allowed to be happening in this city. Salih Wazardin is the chair of the City of St. Catharines Anti-Racism Anti Advisory Committee. He joins us now. Thanks for doing this today. Hey, thanks for having me on, Scott. As you said, I'm Salih Wazardin with the City of St. Catharines 
anti-racism advisory committee. And for us, it's not about what some people find funny, other people find offensive. It's about, like you said, the harm that's caused by normalizing racism, misogyny, and homophobia. And you've seen in Hamilton with open harassment on a city bus or racist road rage. You know, where do people get the idea that, that it's, it's acceptable to do this? It's through normalizing racism and homophobia and misogyny, which comedy acts like this do. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Even a famous comedian like Jay Leno has said that. And he's come around and apologized for racism in his act. And he says that if comedians don't adapt to uh, the um, uh, new understanding or correct understanding of racism, they shouldn't be telling jokes. That's, that's Jay Leno saying that. And, and you know what, you're right about that. And yet at the other side, there are other comedians who have said, look, we can't sanitize humor. One comedian said, um, going to a comedy club and expecting not to get offended is like going on a roller coaster and expecting not to get scared. And there would be people who say comedy by its nature is always going to offend somebody. Is that not true? Well, Jeff Denham himself said that he doesn't want to be that offensive, but in one of his clips he says, he feels he has to be because that's what got him to where he is. That's what he's made his living off of. But that's the problem that, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, you shouldn't be making your living off of things that is, ends up um, really killing people and destroying, destroying lives. I mean, it's not an exaggeration. You've seen in London where um, almost some family of four was, you know, was killed in a, uh, by, by a vehicle. And Statistics Canada has come out recently saying that there's a 72% increase over the last two years in police-supported hate crimes. So this is actually another another pandemic of racism, misogyny, and uh, and homophobia. And that's why it's not just uh, any kind of um, offensive content or anything like that. There's other uh, there's many other comedians who have uh, recently been canceled by cities and venues. And those places have said, yeah, you know, like you said, that uh, comedy does push boundaries, but those boundaries are changing. And comedy's got to adapt it's it's not it shouldn't have been acceptable in the first place but especially now with what we're seeing with the racism it's not acceptable to make to make to make a living off of basically making a mockery or butt of jokes of women racialized people and lgbtq2sia plus people Okay, and silly. I, look, I, I believe there are people listening who are agreeing with what you're saying for sure. I think you, I think there is definitely some agreement out there, maybe widespread agreement. Where though, th- the tricky part here is if you say, well, we can't allow offense to certain groups or some offense. Where does that line end? Because do we then? freedom of expression and and creative expression is something that there's a lot of concern that says where does that then end are there only certain groups you can't offend or would offending anybody or should offending anybody then mean that you should not be given an up of stage to participate how do you how do you figure that out well let me let you in on a trade secret about anti-racism scott that it's not that complicated actually the canadian government and the ontario government have already listed the groups that are protected under human rights codes. Uh, so that's not something that, you know, you and I have to make up. It's already been established. And it actually, I mean, it, it's pretty obvious when um, when um, there's, there's mockery and um, uh, making the better jokes of, of um, groups that are being attacked uh, under racism, misogyny, and homophobia. It's, um, it, you know, in, in South Africa, the South African um, Advertising Standards Authority which is not a government body. It's actually an industry aso- association 
you know, they themselves said, look, this character, Ahmed, the dead terrorist, is racist and shouldn't be used. And Jeff Dunham tried to say, well, he's not actually Muslim. And the South African Advertising Standards Authority said, well, his name is Ahmed. You know, that's one of the names of Muhammad. And you can see in the act, actually, he talks about Allah. So he's putting ideas out there that Islam is dangerous, which is actually the ideas behind Islamophobic attacks. So it's it's not that much of a mystery, actually. It's it's pretty straightforward. Not that Does it matter? Does it matter when you're contemplating this? Does it matter that Jeff Dunham is a white guy doing this? If if he was not, a, and the reason I ask that because another very a very famous one of the most successful Canadian comedians ever, Russell Peters, much of his act is about racial stereotypes, and yet w- is it different if the person is a minority? Well, I think you can see it's pretty big distinction between how Russell Peters does it and how Jeff Dunham does it. I mean. Uh, uh, Russell, Russell Peters does um, uh, make jokes from stereotypes, but he's pretty clear that he's not um, making a mockery of a whole group or, you know, doing it in a way that uh, normalizes uh, making them the, the butt of jokes. Um, but, uh, I mean, I, I think comedians themselves are also um, paying attention and changing their act. I mean, I talked about Jay Leno. There's other comedians as well who've said, look, you know, we've got to change the way we do comedy. And it's not just comedy. I mean, this is happening all over. I mean, um, we had the Canada Games recently in Niagara, and the mayor had pointed out that um, they had to change the way that they do the um, firing pistol in the games because of people's dis- people with disabilities. So if sports can change, comedy can change too. Uh, we got to run, but... I- this show, as I understand it, reading the stories about it, this show is already sold out or close to sold out. And the city of St. Catharines has now said, no, we're not going to cancel this, but we may revisit this down the road. If it's sold out, that means there's an awful lot of people who still want to see him. What, what about the idea that a lot of people would then say is, look, let adults make their decisions. And if people are open to this or think that it, let adults can be adults and can decide for themselves and the market will determine whether or not there's an audience for this down the road. What about that? Well, I wish those who, of us who think it's racist could just put our heads in the sand and it would go away, but it won't. Whether we go, whether we attend or whether someone like me attends or not, the normalization of racism is still happening. And so it boils down to exactly the point you're making. What What's more important? Is it is the harm that's caused by normalizing racism, homophobia, misogyny more important? Or is it more important not to offend those who think that we should just accept racism as normal and that it's even funny? And that's 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 there's a long there's a long history in anti-racism of this exact problem. You know, what's uh, we, we can't have it both ways. You can't say you're a compassionate city. We're against racism. Racism has no place here. But when it comes to town, you say, oh, we have no choice but to lie down and do nothing because it would offend some people who think it's funny or th- want it to be normal. Saleh Wazardeen, uh, chair of the City of St. Catharines Anti-Racism Advisory Committee. Thanks for the time today. Really appreciate the discussion. Thanks, Scott. Really appreciate being on your show. Saleh Wazardeen of the City of St. Catharines Anti-Racism Advisory Committee, as you said. Thanks. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The story of the summer, the story that would not go away, would be about an anchor person and her hair color. But that is the story in Canada this summer. When we look back at the summer of 2022, the Lisa Laflamme story will probably be front and center. Uh, Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, joins us now. Alyssa, how are you this morning? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on today. 
Well, this has been, uh, you're a PR expert. Uh, as far as PR goes, this would be an object lesson, I would think, in really unsuccessful PR by the company. But they are now trying to push back against this and change the narrative. I'm just wondering, has that boat sailed? Is that horse out of the barn? Are all the cliches accurate? Can you possibly undo this? You know what? It's really hard to undo it at this point because CTV really let the narrative get away from them. What they thought would be sort of a rip the Band-Aid off, uh, let Lisa Flam have the moment to tell her story. They did not... Um, they did not really take into account the backlash that would occur. I think that they felt when they were sitting in their meetings that there would be some backlash that she was leaving. But the tenor of the video that she posted on Twitter really gave people an insight into how she was feeling and that she was unjustly done. So that's where the narrative really took off. And about an hour after that, they announced, they thought, well, let's switch the channel really quickly. Let's announce that Omar Sachedina... Um, you know, Canada's first gentleman of color uh, and the smiley Muslim is going to be have the top job at CTV. That should that should quell the uprising, but it didn't. People got mad at Omar for absolutely no reason. What should have been a celebration of this of this ascension to a great job instead absolutely turned it on its head. And CTV uh, basically went through the playbook of obviously with, um, you know, appropriate counsel on crisis communications and what to do. They announced an investigation. And then uh, then the advertisers started to get in and it kind of continued to snowball from there. It just it seems that with all of these things, if they're uh, look, I don't know. Honestly, and, and you don't know and nobody knows, we don't really know what the reason was for Lisa Laflamme being let go. It may have been hair color, it may have been age, it may have been gender, it may have been they wanted to save money, it may have been any number of things. But whatever it is, as soon as this started, as soon as you got the whiff that this was becoming a social justice kind of thing that you were going to be on the wrong side of, should you not have come out immediately even if it was a little uncomfortable and said, hey, we're just trying to save money here for our shareholders. The new guy costs a lot less or something. Just, But to leave this and let it fester just seems so misguided. Well, I think they thought it was all going to go away and it didn't. And what happened was really something when we talk about things that go viral. You know, we had... Um, Dove uh, jump on the bandwagon mm -hmm. and with their campaign, and then um, Wendy's. Wendy's jumped on jumped on the bandwagon. And then Sports Illustrated basically put something on. So it, you know, in the doldrums of summer, when people are looking for for news, and you know as well as I know that this is the the week before school is a fairly the weeks before school there's a fairly low uh, ebb in the news cycle. This really seemed to get on get within the public consciousness, and I think that there's a couple reasons for that. Number one, there was obviously dissension within the CTV newsroom because there had been a number of reviews that had been done. And, you know, people, uh, people who are racialized, people who are women, they had sort of suffered some injustices over the years and never felt that anything was done. And they became sources. So they became sources. And you'll have to excuse my dog there. That's okay. And, We've all been there. And, yeah, I know. And... Then the story sort of basically took off on their own narrative. So why the CEO of Bell did not jump in earlier and say, look, you know, here, here was our reality. I don't think that they felt that people were going to buy the, um, 
you know, the narrative of, well, listen, you know, news is going in a different direction. The demographic is is shrinking. People who are younger are not necessarily or at all turning into the 11 p.m. news. So I guess they just didn't feel that was the narrative that Canadians would care about. So they didn't come out with it. Instead, what they keep doing is doubling down on this was not an ageism issue. And yeah. By then it was too late, I have to say. I mean, they keep trying. It's not that they shouldn't keep trying. It's not that they should stay quiet. And I think that the CEO of, uh, you know, Bell Media, he needs to say something. But not to say something or to continue to, you know, sit there in silence is definitely not the way to go. It does seem that there are, well, we know this, there are tremendous public relations people out there who do an unbelievable job. And the thing is, we don't necessarily know a lot about them because they're doing such a good job that they're not finding themselves in the firestorm like this. That That's when you know, I think you've got a great PR person when you don't have to deal with something like this. But we also, boy, it, it just seems like politicians are constantly having a tough time explaining themselves. And here you've got someone trying hard to explain themselves, but not gaining traction. I, I just, I look at this and I think it's, as I said off the top, Alyssa, that if you're in the communications business, you should be able to communicate. And I, that, that to me is where the weakness has come here. There's just been a fault in the weakness, in, in the communication. Well, you know, it's like the shoemaker's children have no shoes. It's the same thing. Huh. Yeah. And yeah. I, I need to tell you that I do believe that there were some very good communications people that were counseling Bell Media at the time. So you can receive counsel, but maybe you don't always take it. And you think, you know, no, uh, no, no, fair. no, we're going to okay. play it this way. So it's not that I don't think they received that good counsel, but at the end of the day, the client makes the decision or the C-suite makes the decision. And then, you know, when it all starts to fall apart, then who's the first call that they make to? And it's all about shoring up. Now, what do we do? Now, what do we do? That didn't work. Okay, we were wrong. Just get us out of this. So, very, you know, yeah, very I, fair. I've very fair. There, I've been there and uh, it's not great. It's a lot of sleepless nights. And half of the time you're sitting there stewing thinking, well, if you'd only listened to me in the first place. But um, there's really nothing you can do. So I think that what the communications team is doing now, I think they're probably meeting daily uh, at this point. Um, that's hourly. Uh, well, yeah, sometimes <laughs> hourly. I think it was hourly in the and the, the early going daily to kind of you know monitor. And they're doing tons of monitoring right now. They're listening on social media. They're looking at their news clippings that will come yeah. in every morning yeah. to see where the story is going. And that's we, how they will continue to respond um, to this issue. We got to run, but you know what? I, I take your point, and I think your point is probably better than my point, which is that it, no, it, it may we be, both have good no, points. It may be that you know what the PR people did just fine, and if you don't listen to good advice, then um, you know what that's not on them. So that that could well be. Uh, Alyssa, thank you so much for the time today. I always appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We are talking about 1972. Uh, a couple days from now, it'll be the 50th anniversary of the start of the 1972 Canada-Russia, Canada-Soviet, more appropriately, summit series. And uh, for a generation, for a certain age group, this is still the biggest thing that ever happened. For a lot of other people, more than half of Canadians now who weren't alive when this happened, I don't know what this means. Let me bring in Larry Pomerantz. He is uh, helping to collect stories and trying to make sure this stays alive and part of our national consciousness. Larry, how are you this morning? I'm very good. How are you? 
Doing great. Um, what what do you think about that? We do the median age now was not alive for this, and we know that anytime people are not alive for a certain event, it's almost never going to mean as much to them as people who lived through something. So, how do we keep this alive? How, does it even matter that we keep it alive? In fifty years, will it matter that they that Canada and the Soviets played, or at that point, do we just find something new for them? So I would say that if hockey is going to matter in 50 years, then this event definitely matters uh, in 100 years. It, it was a, a defining moment for Canada. It changed the face of hockey, and uh, it's worth remembering. It's, it's, uh, one of the, I'm told it's one of the top seven events uh, in, in the formation of Canada and the evolution of Canada. How do you make that case, though? And look, as I say, anyone who was alive would agree with you, I'm quite sure. But how do you make that case to a 20-year-old who says, uh, you know, the bits of this that I've watched, the players look slow compared to today, and the film is not high def, and it just doesn't look that good. How do you explain how significant it was? So there has to be uh, some sort of education process uh, in place. In my uh, press release, I said, compare this to what we know about the Terry Fox story and how uh, relevant that is to the the lives of of all students. Uh, They all learn about Terry Fox. They all participate in Terry Fox fundraisers. Uh, And Terry Fox's amazing event took place after the 72 series. So it it just it has to become part of the, the curriculum. And believe it or not, Team Canada actually put together a curriculum, a component but they have yet to release it, but it should be coming soon. There are, there is a documentary series coming out. I don't even know, is documentary the right word? There's a new reality series of old film and stuff coming out. And there are at least one, maybe two new books that I've heard about this. 50 years later, is there any part of this that has not been explored and explained? Could there be anything new that we could learn 50 years on? I I think there's going to be things that we learn about what's happened since uh, the, the games took place. Uh, there's, there are events uh, happening right now with Team Canada. We're, we're obviously, we're losing some players uh, every year that uh, uh, every year that passes. But yeah, I think we're going to learn some new, new things. Um, we, we've thrown a video up on TikTok, uh, and uh, in just a couple days, we have 25,000 hits on it. And that's because the generations that didn't experience this are starting to learn about it through uh you know current social media technology does it matter that for some people the greatest goal ever scored again depending on your age will be Sidney crosby in vancouver to keep this alive must it be the most significant hockey series or can people believe that some other goal was more important but this was also very important so, you know, everyone will come to, to uh, their own, uh, I guess, uh, understanding of what, what uh, the significance was. Uh, all we can try to do, those who actually saw it, is communicate our stories. Uh, things are best uh, told through, through a story mechanism. And the more that we uh, have younger people speaking to older people to convey that message of, of the significance of this thing, this was this was actually a war. It was a war on ice. And, uh, you know, you look back at it 50 years later, and there were no losers. Everybody won as a result of this. The, the game changed. The, 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 
the Soviet style of play came into the NHL and it opened the NHL up to uh, all the fantastic players that we have from all around the world now. And the game expanded around the world. It, it's significant in many, many ways. And uh, I think uh, when people start to uh, have a look at this, especially around the 50th anniversary, they're going to get a better understanding of why this thing was so important. See, I'll disagree with you that everybody won. I think clearly losers in this, German officials and Wayne Cashman's <laughs> tongue. And if people don't know what that means, go look it up. You can find it probably on your website. Uh, those were two losers for sure in this series. I've got to agree with you on that. Absolutely. <laughs> Now, it's a, t a true story. My parents actually went to Russia for the 72 series. Do you know, and this is, you know, this is just one of those weird little things. Do you know what it cost for Canadians? Because there were three or 4,000 Canadians that went over there. Do you have any idea what the charter costs for the flights, the hotels, the game tickets, the whole package? Any idea what it costs? I do not know, but we want that story on the 72series.ca uh, website. If you went to all the games over there, you took the flights, you were in the hotels, you went to the Bolshoi, you had your meals, you had your transfers, you had literally everything. I'm looking at the brochure right in front of me as we speak. $649. I'd take that trip. I would take that trip, wouldn't you? And and the, the reason is, again, and this is part of what makes this story so intriguing, nobody really thought that it was going to be anything about hockey when people were booking their trips. They were basically just going to see Russia because Canada was going to kill the Russians in this series. So had you known, had they known what this series was going to turn into, I bet you it would have been more than 649 bucks. <laughs> and there would have been a lot more Canadians over there. Can you imagine if, if, if anybody had been able to know ahead of time how the last game would play out and how important it would be and every Canadian would have been over there. There wouldn't have been anybody left in this country. <laughs> there wouldn't have been room for any uh, Soviet uh, residents uh, in the arena either. No, absolutely true. Uh, the website is called Our, as in possessive, Our72Stories.ca. That's Larry's website. You can go look it up. You can contribute. You can read about it. You can share the stories with your grandkids. You can tell them why it's important because... Um, it is important. I mean, as, as Larry says, it is it is a significant part of our history, sporting and otherwise. Larry, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Just one last thing, Scott. Um, yeah, I, we're looking we're, we're looking for some teams to record uh, a thank you videos uh, to this, you know, to the uh, seventy two hockey uh, heroes, and uh, we need these uh, by Friday. So if anyone's out there wants to shoot uh, a quick video similar to the Hockey Night in Canada openings. Um, you know, we'd like to see that uploaded on the website and it'll get uh, posted this Friday as we start to uh, uh, present the, the uh, games in real time. Our72stories.ca. Larry, thanks. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.